The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for March 30th, 2017, the Darkness at Nunes edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is of New Haven. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. New Haven. New Haven. Any one of those. (laughs) All three of those places. John Dickerson is uh, I don't know where he is. I think it's, is it's spring break or something. He gets a, he's gotten he he's either. gotten a day off. They've they've uh, they've released him. Uh, no, I bet he's on work working release. somewhere. He's probably working somewhere. So we don't have John today, but that's okay because we have Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent here in D.C. with me. Hello, Jamel. Hello. On this week's Gab Fest, Devin Nunes is he a useful idiot, an American patriot, an actual villain? We'll talk about the bizarre collapse of the House Intelligence Committee and the investigation into Donald Trump's campaign ties to Russia. Then, will Democrats overplay their hand after the abject collapse of Trump care? And then, why are so many people on the right so obsessed with coal? And we'll talk about Donald Trump's uh, new climate plan, such as it is his plan to make the climate worse. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, we're going back and forth, but I'm making a game time decision. We're going to talk about Lackgate. Is it okay to breastfeed someone else's child? We'll determine that once and for all. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfestplus. Also, on Wednesday, May 10th, of course, we have a live show here at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C., slate.com slash live for tickets. And we have a special guest who is going to join us. Evan McMullen, the conservative presidential candidate, the Utah, the former intelligence official who's been saying such interesting, provocative and eloquent things about the new president is going to be our guest for that show. We're really excited that Evan is coming. So join us. It'll be fun. Slate.com slash live for tickets. From Evan to Devin. Devin Nunes is someone you never heard of a month ago. Even Jamel confessed you'd never heard of that guy a month ago. Yeah, I, I I have not. No, I definitely hadn't. Yeah. I thought maybe you had, but no. Uh, Nunez, a a vigorous non-entity of a Republican congressman who, through pep and through showing up, has made it to the chairmanship of the House Intelligence Committee. After serving on the Trump transition team, he finds himself heading the House investigation into Rus- Russian meddling in the election, and he is handling himself, I would say, oddly, peculiarly. This week. Nunes has effectively shut down the committee investigation for the moment. He canceled hearings with a series of Obama intelligence and justice officials, including I think John Brennan, James Comey, Sally Yates were all scheduled to talk. And he said, no, we'll, 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 well, let's not do that. Even as he is bringing his investigation to a halt, the Senate and FBI investigations are racing forward. His shenanigans of last week also, incidentally, uh, include him sneaking into the White House after hours, receiving a secret briefing, apparently from a White House official, possibly an old employee of his, then giving a press conference declaring that intelligence agencies had in fact surveilled Trump officials, which attempted to give a veneer of cover to Trump's lie that President Obama had wiretapped him. Then, oh, it just gets so Byzantine. He went off and raced off and briefed the White House about information the White House had just briefed him about. And 
it and it appears, all happened on White House grounds with some yeah. source he now won't tell his own committee members about. Uh, he won't. Yeah, he he said he would tell everyone what he would learned, and then he wouldn't tell, and then he wouldn't tell who it came from. It is so ridiculous. So Jamel, sometimes the claim is, of course, that the cover up is worse than the the wrongdoing. People have said about this Russia scandal, actually, the wrongdoing may be worse than whatever the cover up and the antics. Do you think that Nunes's antics here are going to make it more likely that the truth comes out, or in fact, are they a useful chaff? that is distracting people from the investigation and will, will in fact make the investigation less likely to succeed. Right. Well, so I should say from the outset, I've never really bought the notion that the cover-up is worse than the offense. The cover-up, I, I think what people are trying to get at when they say that is that the cover-up ends up leading like leading crumbs toward, to the offense. There's no cover-up quite skilled enough to completely hide what actually happened. Or to borrow from Ben Franklin, three people can keep a secret if you kill one of them. Um so, uh, Ooh, who I thought dies? two people could see, keep a secret if you kill one of them. Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, huh? I think three people can't keep a secret. Anyway, go ahead. Right. I mean, that's 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 yeah. that's, that's yeah. the that's four the, people can keep a secret if you kill three of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Putin philosophy these days, apparently. Here, I think Nunez is kind of haphazard and incompetent attempts to. Uh, run interference for Trump uh, in the Trump White House. It's just adding more suspicion. In the wake of his stunt last Wednesday, um, when he went to the press to say that you no, know, actually there was surveillance of the Trump administration from the Obama from of Trump from the Obama administration, and it turned out it was sort of just incidental information collected um, through routine surveillance of foreign agents. John McCain the next day, you know, said that we need to have an independent uh, special committee investigating this, and so I think. The fact that Nunes has fumbled this so badly is going to add to the pressure or has added to the pressure to have some kind of independent investigation of the Russia-Trump connection. And of course, if that happens and the odds of that, of, of an investigation uncovering anything, have just gone up considerably. I think also it puts the spotlight on the Senate investigation, um, which has already, you know, gotten some steam underway. The staff that's working on that has classified clearance. They're like moving along. And so to me, it really puts pressure on the role of Richard Burr, who is the Republican who chairs the Senate committee, because if the House committee is like dissolving into, you know, a just like bad news bears tactics, thanks to Devin Nunes, then one cares more about this Senate investigation that's still going on, whether or not we also end up with a select committee or um, an independent prosecutor, the Senate has is moving. So um, in that sense, that is still part of the equation, more important part of the equation. I would point out the bad news bears did end up winning a lot of games. One of the things, Emily, that I, that I think we're just coming to realize is there's there is this um, race between uh, malevolence and incompetence with the Trump uh, administration and it's sort of hard to know which team is ahead at any given moment. But there's, <laughs> well this, there's this dawning realization I have is that the kind of people who associated themselves with Trump early and the kind of people who associated themselves with Trump at all do tend to be kind of really the real third or fourth raters because they wouldn't. You know, they wouldn't be have power with anybody who is a really good, smart person. And they tend to be hugely sycophantic. Um, and therefore, they they're just dumb. Like, that's the yeah. thing. Like, Nunes just appears to not to be a smart person for someone to be the chairman of a very powerful House committee. He just is a not the, the sharpest uh, beer in the six pack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that first 
that the the Trump inner circle, and this was, I think, apparent very early on, was filled uh, with either Trump loyalists, people who have been with them for a long time, or just the most sycophantic fourth string Republicans who you know, no one else wanted them. Um, and they saw a train they could jump on with Trump. I mean, how else, <laughs> how else does uh, Omarosa end up in the White House if not as just like a loyalist and a sycophant? Um, the second thing, and this gets to sort of, I've always, you know, I've, I, I look at all these scandals and situations and wonder to myself, I get running interference for a co-partisan, especially if that person's the president. Like, I think it's a bad choice, but I sort of understand why you would do that. But why would you do that for Donald Trump? Just on a, on a, on a pure partisan basis, because it's very clear that he is not, has no particular loyalty to you. Thursday morning, President Trump has tweeted blasting the House Freedom Caucus, um, saying that if they don't get on board, they're going to derail the Republican agenda. And Trump has been hitting the House Freedom Caucus repeatedly since last week. That's indication to anyone watching that like, if, if you do anything to challenge President Trump, it's going to go after you. And he has no sense of loyalty whatsoever to you. Emily, given that there is a Senate investigation, bipartisan Senate investigation, there is an FBI investigation, why does it matter that the House investigation is a sham run by run by uh, a crook or a, or a you know an idiot? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's a good question. You could argue that in the end, these are overlapping efforts, and so it doesn't matter that much. On the other hand, if anything you know, from a kind of nonpartisan, like, let's actually find out what happened here and make sure that the results become public. The concern has been that there's not enough of that, not that there's too much, right? I mean, the call for a select committee or an independent prosecutor is an effort to bring more of this into the light, especially a select committee, because, you know, the FBI investigation, unless there's an indictment, at least officially is supposed to remain confidential for the most part. I mean, Obviously, Jim Comey changed the rules for that with regard to Hillary Clinton last summer and in the fall. And then there are also all these leaks happening. So that rule may not hold. But the job of, an, of FBI investigators is not to shine a lot of sunlight on whatever happened. That's the job of these committees. And so in that sense, to have the House kind of taken out of commission is not helpful. And I also think there are other people on this House committee who seem like they are interested in getting to the truth. And this sidelines them and their efforts and um, kind of drags them into a big mess. So that part of it seems unfortunate. Also, like, as, I mean, to make the larger uh, constitutional point, as David Korn pointed out and Mother Jones, the only check on the executive from doing evil with in foreign policy and in intelligence is Congress, that Congress's oversight authority is essentially the Crucial. only the only check on it. And if one half of that oversight authority has just said, fuck it, then then we're, we we're you know, article whatever president is article two. The article two executive is, yes. is uh, empowered in ways that are scary. If you were trying to sabotage an investigation, Jamel, effectively, if you were if you were a House Republican and you thought for whatever misguided reason you wanted to sabotage this investigation, what would be the best way to sabotage it? Like, how should you, <laughs> rather than Devin Nunes style? Right. Rather than Keystone Cops style. Well, that was better than Bad News Bears. <laughs> 
I think actually Trey Gowdy, one of the members of that committee, has the right idea, which is not to run to the White House and collude with the White House, but rather to just change the direction of the investigation, to make the investigation about leakers, to make the investigation more about Russian activity, to sort of decenter Trump administration officials, to go after someone who is like pretty low hanging fruit and kind of a uh, no one really cares about. So right, right, like haul Roger Stone in there. Um, but to to have a sacrificial lamb focus on other areas related to but not directly concerning uh, Trump and do that like vigorously, create the impression of a serious investigation, but not don't really have a serious investigation. That's that's good, Emily. Yeah, that was a really good answer. I don't <laughs> think I can top that. I, I mean, think, I feel sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the other way is to is to really um, like make it really long. Just just keep just have hold hold extra hearings, do even more and make it just so boring that people are like, oh, that thing's still going on. I mean, one of the things that 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 people because the media will get bored of it and they'll be like, oh, that Russia stuff is still happening, huh? Um, well, there is a problem with this story that one keeps wondering, like, wait, did I already know that piece of small piece of news that just came out? So there's that. But on the other hand, David, dragging it out is like Dangerous, too, because it does remain this huge distraction for the whole administration. Right. Right. No, Jamel is, Jamel is right. And I just don't that the, one of the problems, Jamel, with your theory is that Trump just refuses to. They should just hang Manafort and Carter Page and right. Roger Stone out to dry. They should just like cut up. They should just say these guys were doing terrible things. We do not approve of it. It was it really was a very big problem. We have nothing to do with them. We've cut ourselves off from these people. And. Right. That's what they should do if they were smart. You know, I, I don't write much about the Russia stuff. I don't really tweet much about it. I kind of much more an observer on this case. But I do think that there's probably something there. And the reason I think that isn't because I think there's Trump is uh, is some like sophisticated figure. But because I think last year, none of these guys thought they were going right. to win. Right. And, and so then this, it wouldn't have mattered. No yeah. investigation. Right. No one ever finds out. It, no, yeah. no, it, right. wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if Paul Manafort is like lining his pockets. It wouldn't matter if Carter Page is like doing the thing. Like, none of this would matter. The available evidence suggests that Donald Trump in the early 2000s to finance his projects, like got a bunch of Russian cash. And that this, just by virtue of the fact that the Russian oligarch class has close ties with the Russian political class, that puts him sort of in range of, in relationship with people around Vladimir Putin or Vladimir Putin. I think it's purely self-interested. I don't think he's some sort of Russian plant, but I think that relationship is probably there. And again, he probably does, the, you know, this time last year, he's like, I'm not going to win this. So, like, who cares? I cannot release my tax returns. I'll lose. It'll all blow over. But now he's president. And now all this stuff, the shady stuff these guys did that they thought they could get away with because they're not going to be in position to power or influence anyway, is coming back to bite them. And that's why they're not going to, he's not going to sacrifice Page or Stone or right. Manafort. Right. In addition to the fact that, like right. he he values loyalty above everything, and so the fact that they are, <laughs> even though, as you say, he doesn't practice it, right, right. There's reasons to want to derail an investigation on part of uh, Nunes, and that's because I think there definitely is like there's just there's shady stuff happening, and it's the kind of shady stuff that generally uh, we frown upon as uh, a country. Well, we'll find out. I mean, the other name we haven't mentioned yet is Mike Flynn. I'm 
waiting with bated breath to see if Mike Flynn is making a deal with the FBI. It does seem like he probably broke some laws. That report from James Woolsey, the head of the CIA last week, that he was at some meeting where Flynn was talking about kicking a Turkish cleric out of the United States. That whole thing looks, (laughs) it just looks bad. And so you could imagine that Flynn would have reason to make a deal and that he would know some things. But obviously at the moment, we're in the land of speculation. Right. and the, the, to watch. It's the Flynn stuff. If if any of this ends up being truly like a you know a presidential crisis for Trump, I think it's the Flynn stuff. It's not just that Flynn is obviously corrupt and obviously playing with some unsavory characters, but that like for you know absent political pressure, he'd be the national security advisor of the United States. And uh, he knows all. He was read into all of our most closely held state secrets because right. he did have that role for a month. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like... Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The American Health Care Act is dead. With it died the dream that the Republican majorities in Congress would sweepingly and quickly remake President Obama's legacy. Democrats are glotational about the failure of ACA. Republicans are recriminating. But realistically, there's a lot of moving on already. Uh, We have a Gorsuch nomination coming up um, and perhaps the death of the filibuster as we're Gorsuching. And there is going to be tax reform potentially and maybe, maybe some quick action there. Probably not. But let's talk about the fallout. Uh, We taped last week's show before ACA fell down, and then we did some quick uh, updates, but we haven't dissected it. So is healthcare dead, Jamel? Is is it completely 100% dead, or is there a possibility that Trump is going to work with Democrats to do something? Is there a possibility that they're going to use HHS to really undermine Obamacare so they can have a chance to go back at it later? So legislatively, if we're thinking... If we're thinking health care in terms of um, House Republicans and specifically Paul Ryan's attempt to not just unravel the Affordable Care Act uh, or, or pull it up root and branch, but also use that as an entryway into fundamentally reshaping and I'd say destroying um, Medicaid and Medicare, then I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think what the implosion of the American Health Care Act demonstrated was that there are too many entrenched constituencies for expanded health coverage and that in 
the seven years since uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act, Americans have gotten accustomed to the notion that the government will guarantee access to health insurance in one way, shape, form, or another. And so the implosion last week demonstrates that Republicans will certainly try again. I don't think they're going to succeed. That too many industry forces are against them, and frankly, too many too many voters are. That this died. A lot of the attentions on the House Freedom Caucus, but this certainly died because of moderate members, because of grassroots pressure from Democratic constituencies, from Democratic voters to defend these health benefits. Now, I think healthcare is still on in the sense that so much of the Affordable Care Act, and especially as far as the private market regulations and the exchanges is basically done through administration and done through administrative administrative uh, authority. And so I, I do think that the next stage of this will be uh, Secretary Tom Price and his HHS doing whatever they can to essentially sabotage the operation of the healthcare markets. What's ironic about this is that this is going to happen at the same time that the failure of the American Healthcare Act has emboldened the Democratic left to push for not just the public option, which is almost like disdain at this point, but for expanded Medicare, and if nothing else, then an aggressive push to further expand Medicaid. If the Trump administration is successful in sabotaging the private markets, then that will only increase the pressure for expanding Medicaid even further or turning Medicare into a more a broader, more general program for more Americans. If I were an ideologue, a conservative ideologue, and I thought that there needed to be a place for the market in healthcare, I would be against trying to sabotage the ACA through uh, uh, rulemaking and regulation because that's just going to give fuel to Democrats. And what this has demonstrated just legislatively, right, is that like all the rigmarole Democrats went through uh, ten, uh, eight years ago to get all the industry buy-in and to sort of blah, blah, blah was a waste of time. With a firm enough intra-party consensus, they could have just like rammed through some stuff through Congress and not have to worry about it. So the Republicans have given both the Democratic left a template for how to accomplish broad-reaching changes in the healthcare industry and uh, may end up giving political incentive to doing so as well. Emily, do you think well, – Jamel, actually, sorry, just to linger on that for a second. Do you think there's any possibility that – that the Trump administration is going to say, you know what, we might as well run this competently and run it well and not sabotage it because of what you just said. Because if we if we undermine it, we're going to end up with socialistic medicine in this country. Or, or for no other reason that it's politically not savvy to make some big part of the American economy and of people's lives explode while you're the president like you are on the. it's unbelievably disgusting the idea that you would do it that you would try to do it and try to do it anything other than make right, it work that you're well. going to ruin people's health care yeah. in order to like right hoist the democrats on their own petard in theory when actually you're the president and people presumably will hold you at least partly accountable right sorry go ahead jamal no I, so i think that let's say the president is in this case Jeb Bush, or let's say Elsa is Jeb Bush. Oh, please, that is I. He's that's not. like I have nighttime no, he, fantasies. Those are my nighttime so, fantasies. So, so there wouldn't. Is I, he wearing? I, is he wearing lacy under things? Yes. Um. Uh. A very tasteful. Does he speak Spanish fluently? <laughs> um. So, in this hypothetical world where we have President Jeb Bush, I think 
much the same thing happens with the American Health Care Act just because the internal tensions within the Republican Party still exist. But I think there's a recognition because presumably this would be a White House staff with relative experienced people with like some policy chops and, and there may be actual presidential direction that th- there would be recognition that we might as well just make this thing work as best we can while trying to bring some conservative policy outcomes to it as well. The problem here is that Trump's image is a strong dealmaker leader. Trump himself is not a particularly good dealmaker or strong leader. He is not a cipher so much, but he he has no ability to manage. He has no ability to direct. There, in a real sense, is no effective center of power in government right now, which means that the agency heads um, are somewhat semi-autonomous. I think Tom Price is going to do what Tom Price wants to do, and we'll get a rubber stamp from Trump. Um, and I don't think there's I don't think Trump is a competent enough president to be able to rein in whatever Tom Price is going to do, which means that like if Tom Price wants to try to gut the Affordable Care Act through a regulation, he'll do it. And Trump neither has the knowledge nor the interest nor the capacity to really to really stop him in a meaningful way. Emily, do you think that Paul Ryan is going to pay any significant price for his grotesque mismanagement of this bill or is it just that he he has a job that nobody else wants and there's nobody else who has this even if there were somebody who wanted there's really nobody else has any kind of stature to to take it from him i think it's the second thing though it was like an amazing train wreck to watch i mean we saw the explosion of the myth of donald trump master marketer and deal maker but as compelling to me was like the implosion of paul Ryan, you know, policy wizard, vote whipper, he just seemed to have created this Frankenstein of a bill that nobody wanted to support and to have been surprised that he didn't automatically have conservative buy-in, which I guess you could be a little bit forgiven for that. It was a little crazy to have Mulvaney and Price um, and Mike Pence on board for something that, you know, the Freedom Caucus was running away from and horrified by. But it did seem like a real misreading, a forgetting that the whole idea of the Freedom Caucus, the reason that Paul Ryan has his job instead of John Boehner is that the Freedom Caucus is sees its job as saying no to things that it doesn't like. I mean, that's like the core premise of the Freedom Caucus. But it's hard to see who could replace Ryan. So I guess he just gets to stay there as a punching bag. It's so deeply satisfying as somebody who believes, I believe, in professionalism and in, you know, expertise to see the failure of Republican legislation that they that that because they've been 10 years without ever trying to legislate at all, they basically don't have anybody who knows how to do it. It's as if suddenly a whole series of architecture critics are tasked with building buildings. It's like their experience is essentially, you know, attacking buildings and criticizing buildings. But if you don't know how to pour a foundation, if you don't know, you know, what the, what the blueprints need to look like, you're never going to build the fucking building. It's very, like, extremely satisfying to for them to suddenly realize, oh, politics actually is a profession that requires mastery of certain actual legislative skills if we want to if we want to have legislation although maybe maybe they don't even care about having legislation at this point well they care i mean so now what happens next so there's this rumbling of talks about restarting the health care negotiations inside the party i like jamel i'm skeptical that that really goes anywhere 
And so then presumably they turn to tax reform where they're more constrained than they would have been. They didn't get the, you know, deficit savings out of ACA that they were planning on. So that means that, you know, they can't, at least through um, reconciliation, right, do some huge deficit exploding ta- set of tax cuts and changes. So do they go for some smaller package that has a sunset provision on it, like the Bush tax cuts did? Or do they try for some heavy lift? And if they go for the heavy lift, don't they have like an even higher mountain to climb in terms of all the lobbyist pressure, all the protections yeah. of loopholes, the fight over this border tax, which, uh, yeah, anyway. And, and again, Donald Trump's most successful business venture in his 70 years of life was acting as a reality TV show host, where he had very little responsibility other than to perform. None of his close advisors or aides have any particular government experience. Bannon uh, ran a website. Uh, Miller wrote lots of emails. Wrote lots of emails, right, as a, as a <laughs> communications director. Even Reince Priebus, who has the closest thing in that group to anything like government experience, has no government experience. He's a, he's a party apparatus chick. So – there's, <laughs> they want to do tax reform, but no one. I'm really skeptical that they'll have any different result, precisely because the same limitations are there. And yet, there's so much like push for for them to do something, right? right? I mean, the the impetus to show that Republicans can competently govern has to be stronger now, in a sense, right? Like they failed once, so okay, we gotta but, deliver on this. Well, what the, no? but they'll but yeah, but I think what they'll do is they'll take the easy one. They're gonna they're mm-hmm. gonna decide that they don't have to comport with whatever deficit rules apply. So they'll make it a 10-year bill and they'll just cut a bunch of tax rates that help rich people. I mean, I I guarantee you they will get that win for themselves and it'll be ridiculous. But that seems correct to me. And then I think the um, question is how much political fallout is there from that? Because one of the reasons, presumably, that the Republican health care bill was so unpopular was the reverse Robin Hood effect of it was incredibly stark. I mean, you just couldn't miss it. It was unbelievable. There were parts of the country where some you know, people in their 60s with low incomes would have been paying their entire incomes for health insurance while rich people got an enormous tax break. And so if they produce tax... Uh, cuts that are so tilted in the direction of the 1% or the 0.1%, presumably the voters are not going to like that either, even in some Republican districts. We've had this whole conversation. I intended this topic to be about how are Democrats, what are Democrats to do? Oh, yeah. And we haven't (laughs) talked about Democrats, and maybe that's significant. But what are the ways, Jamel, the Democrats could overplay their hand what they basically are doing now is not doing anything yeah i mean it's interesting because i'm not sure there's i'm not sure they can overplay their hand here too much i mean so the problem with to to look back at republicans again the problem with repeal and replace uh during the obama administration was that it was fundamentally a deception that the consensus view of the Republican Party was that there was no government role in health care. And yet to critique the Affordable Care Act, they essentially critiqued it from the left, right? That it, it was too expensive for the individual consumer. It didn't deliver good enough health outcomes. And so the tenor of the rhetoric implied a more comprehensive and left-leaning solution. But their actual positions and beliefs was what we saw in the American Health Care Act. Democrats don't have that problem, right? That they can actually offer both a critique of the Republicans and a call, calls for improving the status quo that fit very comfortably in their their you know extant goals. 
I think the bigger risk here is for Democrats not recognizing the opportunity they have here, um, given what this fight showed, that that Medicaid is far more popular than, than anyone really anticipated it being, that there is real grassroots energy for more comprehensive healthcare solutions, and that there is a real opportunity here to begin messaging around exactly that, to, to build a consensus for, you know, expanding various programs. Like, like I said earlier, uh, I, I think it's meaningful that in the immediate wake of the bill's failure, governors or lawmakers in Kansas, governors in Georgia, um, the governor of Virginia immediately sort of began moving towards expanding Medicaid or, or re, re, um, restarting efforts to expand Medicaid, right? That like, there is a recognition nationally among lawmakers, state-level lawmakers, that the Affordable Care Act is here to stay, so might as well make the best of it. So, yeah, I don't know I don't know if there's a hand to overplay. The rhetoric they, Democrats are using or would use fits very comfortably with the actual things they want to do, and that, that wasn't the case for Republicans. Emily, a last word on a different subject, which is the Gorsuch nomination. So he is going to be get to the Senate floor soon if he's not already there. Do you think— but- that Democrats will effectively filibuster him and that Republicans will then get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. Yeah, probably. So I think the cloture vote is scheduled for next Thursday and the Senate cloture is a vote that would have to to end debate. The 60 vote threshold. The 60 vote threshold, exactly. right. And then the second vote for the following day, uh, we'll see. But at the moment, the Democrats seemed pretty determined. There are, you know, the Democrats from red states, there are a handful of them who haven't said either way what they're planning to do, but it's not clear that um, there are enough of them to get over 60 votes. It seems like the politics of this, because the Democrats are getting really pushed by their base not to roll over for Gorsuch, that the politics of this are leading to the end of the filibuster for the Supreme Court. Maybe we should talk more about this next week, but I wonder what you guys think about that. Is this the right well, I, I understand why Democrats feel they have to do it. it I mean, just it seems so pointless. They're going. They know they're going to lose the vote. He's, right. Of course, so is going to be a Supreme Court justice. I think the argument that this is the wrong filibuster hill to die on is that if there's another Trump Supreme Court appointment and it's Anthony Kennedy or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Steve Breyer seats, those are the old people on the Supreme Court. That it would be easier to mount a really strong political campaign in favor of saving the filibuster, right? That like, then you have the balance of power at stake on the court. Democrats would do better with moderate, the middle, those elusive centrist voters if they filibustered that kind of choice. But I don't know. On the other hand, the, the thing about the filibuster is that when Republicans need to get rid of the filibuster, they'll get rid of the filibuster. And so I'm not sure the marginal political gain right. from waiting is worth the Democrats um, antagonizing their base right now by not filibustering this pick in light of like the whole ghost of Merrick Garland, which hangs over this. But I, I don't know. I feel pretty agnostic about it. I mean, I also don't have any attachment to the filibuster. I don't think it's some great, uh, you know, tool of the Senate. Um, so I don't care that much, but I don't know. Jamal, what do you think? 
So I think Democrats ought to filibuster Gorsuch for two reasons. First, kind of a short-term reason is that there's no reason to believe that Mitch McConnell is going to keep his promises here. That like it is, it seems to me foolish to think that, oh, okay, we're going to not use filibuster this time because McConnell won't kill it. And then you filibuster the next time and then he kills it. Like there's no reason to trust McConnell. He's Uh, always, McConnell's always out the foxier of the two, right? Like he's the the best at the outsmarting game. It seems very strategically or tactically stupid to trust McConnell on this end. But my my main reason for supporting a filibuster or thinking Democrats should filibuster Gorsuch here has nothing to do with Gorsuch. Gorsuch, it could he could be anyone. It has purely to do with Merrick Garland and the fact that in not granting Garland a hearing, not granting him a vote, in blockading his nomination full stop, Republicans actually did break a really critical norm about how these things work. The way they're supposed to work is that for the most part, if someone dies or retires, the president who's serving serving then can nominate someone and that nominee will be heard. May not be confirmed, but will be heard. And Republicans rejected that for the purpose of allowing or hoping that a Republican president will will nominate a hard right nominee to maintain their control of the Supreme Court. Um, that that's again that's breaking a norm. That's breaking a very important norm. Um, I, I guess you could say it's time for some game theory. This is a situation where tit for tat is the right strategy. By attempting the same kind of blockade, Democrats actually show the importance of that norm. That like you breaking it means we have to escalate too, and the optimal outcome from this mutual escalation is for everyone to recognize that this can't happen again, that like, this is too dysfunctional. We're going to reinstate the norm. We're going to make sure we're going to, we're going to let you let Gorsuch fall and we'll do a buy. And then we'll return to the normal. But that's not going to happen. The Republicans aren't going to let Gorsuch fall. That's not going to happen, but I still think it's worth, I still think it's worth making the point that like, what happened with Merrick Garland was actually unacceptable. The, I think one of the consistent stories of the Republican Party since the 1990s is a is a violation of critical norms about governance, critical norms about how we do things, about how we treat the opposition, about how we behave in the majority. And at each one of these norms violations, Democrats have basically said, oh, okay, well, just don't do this again. Now is a time where you just you just have to draw the line. The line, you know, what's that line from Star Trek: First Contact? The line is here. Um, <laughs> and, Can you do uh, that again? No, I won't do that again. <laughs> Once was enough. <laughs> President Trump's new executive order on climate independence, an order he rolled out at a ceremony before a dozen coal miners, used as props in a very grotesque kind of way ushers in a new and uncertain era in energy regulation and climate policy. The order begins to dismantle President Obama's clean power plan, uh, proposes to lift some regulations on methane pollution that comes from fracking, lift some restrictions on new coal power plant construction, or it changes the regulations that would then lift some restrictions, or proposes to change regulations. And would open federal land to coal leasing again, among other things. It would not pull us out of the Paris Climate Accord, but it would basically, if it's carried forward, it makes it impossible for us to hit the targets from the Paris Climate Accord. So, Emily, is this, in fact, going to help the coal industry? Which, if I understand it correctly, coal industry is about like 80 or 90 percent of the U.S. economy, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, millions of jobs too. I mean, it seems like it will slow the closing of some coal mines and coal-fired power plants, but the jobs line, which is supposed to be the crucial thing here, looks like it will be flat or even continue to decline. I think there are about 63,000 coal jobs across the country right now. A little now. bit more than that. More than that? More than that. Okay. It's more, I think it's 83,000 or 77,000 or something. In any case, the graphs I was looking at made it look like they were not really going to rise very much. What will happen is that the decline will be slower. But it mostly seems like this is one of those incredibly frustrating and to me kind of heartbreaking moves where you do something for political reasons. The payoff is minimal in terms of helping the people you claim you're going to help. I mean, surely there's some money that goes to coal executives that comes out of this and you just do a lot of damage. You don't address climate change in the way that the Paris Accords promised to. And you also don't position the United States as a leader on alternative energy in the way that seems like it's the future. I mean, if anything, that is the part that makes me the most upset that we're going to cede that to China and weaken the market incentives that are pushing towards alternative energy sources. Right. Jamel, from a political matter, why is it that coal miners matter? They mostly are clustered in, for the most part, in a couple of states that actually are very uncompetitive. West Virginia and Kentucky are two of the main states. I suppose there's some in Ohio and probably elsewhere. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. But it's, but they're not, it's, it's a tiny number of people in an industry that is dying and affected by these market forces that don't really have much to do with with daily politics anyway. Why are they so central to the thesis of Republican energy policy? First, obviously, it's just that the coal industry is a major supporter and donor to Republican politicians. And so this is like kind of standard issue interest Payback. group. Yeah, you know. Helping out a friendly industry. The second thing I think is just identity politics. And we use that term typically in the context of Democrats and like gays and lesbians and black people and and Latinos. But Republicans play identity politics too and they play identity politics for white Americans. And the coal miner, the blue collar white male coal miner is an archetype that speaks I think more broadly – to a self-conception of a certain number of Republican voters about their place in society. It is flattering this image. It is flattering the image of a lot of blue-collar and even white-collar Republican voters. And it is a symbolic way of saying, I care about people like you, or at least I want to bolster the status of people like you within society. And so that's why Trump talked a ton about coal miners. That's why he talked a ton about uh, traditional industrial work, even though – like as with coal miners, a number of people working in car factories or in the kinds of factories we associate with mid-century the United States, it's pretty small in that most working class professions are service professions. But service professions are disproportionately held by women, by minorities, and don't have the same kind of cultural cachet as sort of like in the white male blue collar style of profession does. So in my mind, this is like one part interest group massaging and one part just like pure identity politics. 
And there are more of them in swing states, too, right? They were crucial to Trump's victories in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. I mean, the other thing about the identity politics is I think, so Make America Great Again, this like exactly fits into that nostalgic theme of resuscitating dying industries and a kind of dying way of life. And I also think in fairness to the people who supported Trump for these reasons, there is this real hunger for the kinds of jobs that provided like a comfortably middle-class lifestyle without a college education. And that involved like very traditional conceptions of masculinity where you're like working with your body and your hands. And there are a lot of people who prefer those jobs deeply to the kind of service industry jobs that don't offer up that same satisfaction in terms of masculine identity and that also don't pay as well. Like there is a reason why people are pining and hungry for this kind of industry. It's just that the economy is not moving in their direction. I want to say a couple of points. One is that the, there is this um, romantic past about coal mining. I mean, coal miners, a were very radically left coal mining coal unions were incredibly left so it's a right, it's a historically a hotbed of labor activism but because the mines themselves lost power the workers lost the power to to use their jobs with they had no leverage anymore and so those jobs the unions are very weak if they exist at all number one number two those are really crappy jobs coal, being very a coal dangerous. miner is a terribly dangerous job it exposes you to all kinds of health risks later in life it is not a job that actually people it's people it's a job that people took because it was the probably best paying job where they were, but it's not a job that actually you want your son to have. Um, But that's such an interesting part of all this, right? That like a job that has all of those costs would be like idealized still in this cultural way. There's something really interesting about that. And it just, it goes to show how you can build a whole way of life around a trade or a job that actually has all these problems associated. It's atavistic and it's, it is not, it's all backward looking like it's imagining what a past used to be like. Probably if, if you'd polled the miners in 1957 or whatever the height of U.S. coal manufacturing is, those guys didn't want those. I mean, they had the jobs and they were happy to be paid a decent wage. But did they want their sons to, in fact, continue in those jobs? No, they didn't want their sons to continue in those jobs. They I were, don't know. I feel like you're generalizing too much. Right. And the, also, I'm not the so history easy. of coal mining, the history of coal mining from day one, from the day the first bit of coal was clawed out of the Lancaster, England or wherever it was, is people do do it. And and there are some people who get rich off of it because they own the land uh, or they they own the refinery. But the people who do the actual mining suffer and they're agonized and actually don't want their children to do it. There's a, what's the great, I heard a great novel about coal miners. Um, Ooh, I want you to remember. About coal miners in 19th century England. It's just clear, like, this is the terrible job. You don't, you do it because you have to, and you don't want to, you know, you, you, you don't want to pass it on to your children. Part of the problem is that there are all these communities that would not exist if not for coal mining and their heydays were right. in the, the peak period That's of right. coal mining. And for the people in those communities, so much of their sense of what prosperity looks like, so much of identity is tied up in this past, imagined or otherwise, where the towns were prosperous, where they had t- a lot of people where they were busy because of coal mining. And it's it's difficult. I mean, it, it's 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 
this isn't just for coal mining. This is, you know, this applies to all sorts of different kinds of communities and different kinds of practices. Um, it's difficult to imagine what life, what prosperity even looks like in the absence of any particular new model for it. What's so tragic about it is that the coal isn't coming back for, for reasons that have some to do with government, but mostly to do with just like the changing world. And that these communities, they they do need a way forward. And Trump isn't offering a way forward. He's offering sort of like, I, I will help you maintain the fantasy. But ultimately, his executive orders, his policies aren't going to encourage coal mining to come back. People are still going to be out of work. There's still going to be disinvestment. There's still going to be health problems. All the things are still going to exist. The federal government, well, at least the Trump government, will not do anything about them. You know, for as much as I uh, do not like the fact that these voters back Trump, I do have tremendous sympathy for the for the fact that they back Trump out of a hope that he would do something for them. And I'm angry on their behalf that this is it's obviously all a sham um, and he's not going to do anything for them and that their communities will continue to suffer. I, I mean, I also think there's this fundamental I mean, like philosophical or intellectual problem about this notion of preserving communities. All of us, you know, when you grow up and you grow, you have a childhood somewhere and you think there are often wonderful things about that place and you wish that place to continue or to be the way it is. Some of us are lucky enough to live in places which get more prosperous or where where the changes that happen don't destroy the fabric of that community. But a lot of people don't like because of the way economies change and the world changes. Sometimes you need to tell people, you know what, the best thing for you is for you to move. The best thing for you is for your kids to get an education and get away from where you are. And that that actually we don't want to preserve your community. Your community doesn't – it exists in a, a, a way that is a place that has been passed by because it isn't on a major trade route. It isn't on a river. The economic foundation of it has collapsed. We don't want to preserve it. And it's it's very, 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 very hard to tell anybody that. But in fact, that's what – we have to have, and one of the one of the things that's happened in America is that we've we're losing geographical mobility. People are moving around less than they used to. Our emphasis on owning a home means that people tend to own homes and not to move when they should move. You, we do people a disservice when we tell them, like, yes, your way of life can be preserved. Yes, your town can be preserved. You know, your economy can be preserved. And it's like, no, actually, they're bigger forces than you. And you, the best thing we can do for you is give you the tools to adjust and move and give your children the tools to adjust and move. I think this is where my like inner parochialism really comes in because I think there's something to say about communities that are grounded and that people are just in a place and they're connected to that place and that place is important to them. My uh, mother's family is from a town called Waycross in southern Georgia. And the small, basically a railroad town, and the decline of railroads has meant the decline of the town. I think there's a way to deal with this that doesn't involve saying to people in White Cross, well, you, I guess you just have to pack up and move. And that is, in addition to a lack of geographic mobility, there's also a lack of geographic diversity in American industry and in American business, that things are increasingly owned by handfuls of conglomerates, by you know, massive multinationals, in that like a robust kind of antitrust approach to business may end up bringing back the geographic diversity that can actually sustain communities in different places around the country. 
It would be really interesting if the Trump administration moved in that direction. We won't see it. I can't imagine it because it's so at odds with traditional Republican right, right. donors I mean, yeah. and ideology. It seems like a but it if you were actually fulfilling the populist promises that Trump made, then what you're talking about would be a really important plank of the platform. And we should also mention this isn't merely a feature of rural communities, right? I mean, right. after Katrina, there were like questions to ask about rebuilding New Orleans. You look at a city like Detroit that has these big empty parts to it. I mean, there are cities that also, if you're making a utilitarian calculation, don't really make sense in their current form anymore. And we don't tend to like tell people to just like pack up and go. Well, but I, okay. I don't think you should tell, I don't think you should tell everybody in Waycross, you've got to pack up and go, but I do think it is un- a, you shouldn't tell them we're going to preserve it as it was. I, so I think I think right. that's B, you should make it. You should create opportunities. You should have strong state public university systems so that children from any public school in any part of a state get to go to universities right. in the cities or in regional in regional towns so that they move to places where there are economic opportunities and then then will stay there. Right. Now I, I think that's right, and and there are. Sort of a combination of uh, like robust antitrust, you know, breaking up large companies and like kind of basically forcing them to relocate themselves in different places around the country, of strong state public university systems that don't just that almost by necessity can't cluster in cities. So like Virginia, it's big. There are a couple of its universities are in cities: uh, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, um, Old Dominion University in Norfolk. Uh, George Mason out in Fairfax, but a bunch of its major universities are just in like random towns across the state. Virginia Tech, I mean, and those universities don't just you know serve students and everything, but they also serve the larger communities. They're places people can have jobs. They help generate industry, using education as a way to provide jobs in in small towns is is also another way to do this. I mean, I think they're. I think there's a lot of experimentation to be done here, and I think there's a way to balance out the reality that, right, like a place like Detroit is going to have to change. It will have to be a different kind of city than it was. It can't be. There is no going back to Detroit of the 1960s. And even in the 1960s, right, there's no going back to Detroit of the 1940s. That's just there are places that are tied to particular kinds of economies and particular kinds of social dynamics that no longer existing and can no longer exist. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having moonshine on the porch in your with your coal mining relatives in uh, West Virginia. Jamel, what will you be chattering about? <laughs> uh, it's funny you say West Virginia because I will be chatter- chattering about something that is um, kind of vaguely related. Uh, so everyone is familiar with Hanna-Barbera, the cartoon studio that did, you know, the Flintstones and the Jetsons and all sorts of. I know you were going to talk yeah. about it. I've been reading your tweets. I'm totally enthralled. Go all, ahead. Continue. All sorts of um, uh, cartoons in the 60s and 70s. Those cartoons don't really exist anymore, but Hanna-Barbera still exists, and it actually is, I want to say, if not owned by DC, then it, DC Comics then has a relationship with DC Comics. And last year, DC Comics announced that it would be doing comic adaptations of these properties, and the first one was The Flintstones. Uh, it's written by some, I think, Portland-based writers, Mark Russell, Steve Pugh. I think the artist is Chris Chuckery here. Um, it is, yeah, a Flintstones comic book. Uh, the first volume was released for purchase this past Tuesday. And it takes an interesting approach, which is to take the setting, Bedrock, take the characters, 
uh, modernize them in, in look and style. So there's a lot of photorealism in this series. Like Fred Flintstone actually looks like this giant beast of a man. You can see his neck. Uh, heavily muscled. Everyone looks like a human being. The animals and, and dinosaurs are a little more cartoonish, but still have that kind of sense of photorealism. And then it uses the scenario of this kind of Stone Age society as a way to comment on today's society by basically asking the question, Bedrock obviously knew this is this might just be the first bit of civilization ever. What kind of problems does civilization run into and how would the Flintstones deal with them? Um <laughs> And it sounds it's so <laughs> when I when I read about this, I was like, this sounds like it, it should not work, but it works wonderfully. The writing is fantastic. The art is wonderful, but they really do tackle issues familiar to us, whether it's religion and politics or marriage or even some things more harrowing. Like in the in the series, you learn that Fred and Barney are veterans of the war thought to clear the land for bedrock and they come to the realization that they were engaged in a genocide and how it seems to be repeating itself. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. No, no, it's the word genocide, but like Fred Flintstone has to grapple with a deep moral quandary. Right. That sounds rough. But it's really great and I, I read it all on Tuesday, like I bought it and then just tore through it. And I have to say it, it is one of the best comic books I've read in a I'm, long time. It's so great. Um, it, it, there are moments when it gets profound, and I'll just talk about one of them, which is, of course, in the Flintstones, the furniture and appliances are all living animals. And in, in the in the cartoon, they were sentient and talked to each other um, and, you know, you know, crack jokes about their poor lot in life. In this series, that's still the case, but there's an undercurrent of, of oh, this is basically slavery and these are these 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 people are enslaved. And there's a brief little vignette of two of these appliances, an armadillo who is a bowling ball and an elephant who is a vacuum cleaner. And the bowling ball is perplexed by why Fred always like is throwing him with anger at these pins and is thinks he's going to die every time it happens. And the elephant who goes back into the dark closet every time Wilma finishes vacuuming um, consoles him and says, you know, that the reason – why I can even get through the day is knowing that my friend bowling ball is going to be here at the end of every day. It's going to come back and, and you know, we can, we can commiserate. And it's very, very touching and kind of like a profound statement about finding friendship in horrible circumstances. And it's basically, there's like the tenor of the whole series. It's not, it's not grim. And I want to make that clear. It's not like grim and gritty. It's more like real as hell, just like dealing with like real emotions and real issues all through the, the vehicle of the Flintstones. So, uh that's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to get that. I've, 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 each time you've tweeted a page, I've like zoomed in on it just to read it. Do you think you could have someone reworked the Flintstones theme song in a kind of dark minor key? <laughs> I, I don't know what it would sound like. I don't know. It might, it might sound like, I don't know. I feel like if you're going to do that, it might sound like a massive attack song or something. Emily, what's your chatter? I have two books. There are so many good books coming out this spring. I'm going to do lots of book chatters in the next month or so. But so here are two. My friend and uh, wonderful Yale Law professor, sadly visiting at Stanford right now, James Foreman Jr., has written such an interesting criminal justice book. It's called Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. It's about Washington, D.C., a kind of history, David. It's totally up your alley. It has a lot of history in it. As African-Americans took political power in D.C., how did they choose to handle issues of criminal justice? And it's just really well done and put together. It draws on James's experience when he was a public defender for years in D.C. Is so he I the son of James Foreman? It. 
James He's Foreman the son of, of Snick. James Foreman of Snick, the civil rights activist, and and he also wrote a terrific piece last week in the New York Times, who which made the rounds and deservedly so. So you should totally check out that book. And another book that I found really interesting, and I was almost surprised by that, um, is called About Abortion. It's by Carol Sanger, who is a law professor at Columbia. And, you know, this is a topic I've covered for a long time, and so I have a certain, like, barrier to imagining that there's anything new to say about it. But I think that Carol Sanger really takes this broader lens. The book has law in it. You'll learn a lot about law if you read it. But it also really talks about abortion as a kind of cultural phenomenon and tries to explain and understand what it means that this procedure, which has been legal for, you know, 40 plus years, is still not part of the medical mainstream and also has is continues to be shrouded in secrecy. And Margaret Talbot wrote a terrific piece about this book and another new memoir by an abortion provider in Mississippi, Willie Parker, that Margaret Talbot piece is in The New Yorker this week. So start with that and then check out Carol Sanger's book if you're interested in it. And is Carol Sanger related to Margaret Sanger? That would be too. I don't know. That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I want to chatter about a lovely little piece, which I think was in the Washington Post by Gershom Gorenberg, who's an Israeli journalist, uh, writer, and it's about, uh, it's kind of an obituary. It's not really an obituary, but it's about a person who just died, Elliot Horowitz, who is an Israeli historian. Elliot Horowitz and Gershom Gornberg are both Orthodox Jews. They're sort of liberal Orthodox Jews in Israel. Gershom describes how Elliot Horowitz led him to the greatest acts of kindness of his life. And he cites a couple of them. Uh, one of them is the story of a, there's a Palestinian Arab man who was wrongly arrested and harassed by Israeli soldiers in Hebron, an Arab city with a significant Jewish settlement in it. And these soldiers beat him up and they'd seen him carrying a new washing machine on his head and were suspicious of this new washing machine. The reason he was carrying it on his head is he wasn't allowed to drive it in because it, Palestinians weren't allowed to drive in this particular part of the town. And so they were suspicious of this washing machine. They beat him up, then realized that you know there was nothing going nothing wrong with him nothing he wasn't doing anything wrong <laughs> let him go but in the course of this the washing machine vanished so Elliot Horowitz read about this and or heard about this and said we're going to bring him a new washing machine so they went and bought a washing machine and Gershom and Elliot brought this Arab man a washing machine later they heard about a, an Arab family a Palestinian family who were because of a false tip their fam- home was broken into they were harassed by Israeli soldiers. These Israeli soldiers realized they'd made a mistake, but not before they destroyed the family's computer. And Ugh. so Elliot Horowitz said, we're going to buy them a computer. And so they bought a computer and brought the computer to this family. And there are a couple of other small acts of kindness. And Gershom says, you know, not, not, nothing that they're doing replaces the fact that the Israeli government is doing these terrible things to people or replaces the fact that, the, you know, the system that they're governed by is is wrong and misguided and and that these small acts of kindness in no sense repair anything or they don't repair fully the damage that's been done but they are ways in which theologically they were doing this as jews and as orthodox jews they felt they could make a small contribution in the world anyway it's a really lovely small piece um which i found super moving gershom gornberg in the washington post and I have one other, not chatter, but promotion, which is that next week, there's some craziness going on. It's going to be Freaky Friday at the Gab Fest, uh, except it'll be Freaky Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, which is that we're going to do a host swap with the Culture Fest. So I'm going to 
go on to the Slate Culture Fest next week with Julia and Steve Metcalf and talk about culture, which I'm ill-equipped to talk about. But in return, you guys are going to get Dana Stevens from the Culture Fest on the Gab Fest next week. Uh, and Dana is extremely well-equipped to talk about politics, so you'll enjoy that. So we'll see what happens when we shake it up and have a new dynamic here on the Culture Fest and the Gab Fest. Um, Surely you're going to have some good fight with Stephen Metcalf, David. If you don't manage that, I'm going to be disappointed in you. I hope so. Steve and I generally find ways to kind of go at it. But I don't have the, I don't have the fluency of Jody Rosen. I don't have that the the rapier like uh you can't go toe to toe <laughs> that jody brings to his fights with steve and also i don't know anything about culture so that's going to be a problem hmm. that doesn't stop you though not knowing things that's true and taking a strong stand that's, that's not true. usually a big problem for you that's true our intern is kevin townsend hello in nigeria kevin our producer is jocelyn frank hello in the studio next door jocelyn Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Annie Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our entire roster of shows is at panoply.fm. The GabFest show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email us at GabFest at slate.com and subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes, leaving a comment and rating. It really helps us. For Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie, 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 I'm Bowied. I'm David Plotz. Uh, we'll be with you next week, or actually, you'll have Dana <laughs> and Julia. I know you'll have Dana and Emily and John next week. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm now going to stop talking. <laughs> that was suave. I like that. <laughs> Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.